you really do learn more from failure than success. But also, you got to give yourself a little bit of time to sort of heal <laughs> before you can reflect and really get the insights from those failures. Um, but if you don't do it, you're really missing out on a big opportunity. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all of the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she is one of the most powerful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Named to the Forbes Midas list seven times, that is the list that ranks the world's top venture capitalists before founding her own company. She was the first female investor and then first female partner at Excel Partners and an original investor in a little 10-person startup called Facebook. Today, Teresa Gao is the founder of Aspect Ventures, which is a VC that you heard Melinda Gates talk about with us here on No Limits a few weeks ago. In my conversation with Teresa today, we talk about her background immigrating to the U.S., how she found her way to venture capital, and eventually made the leap to found her own company, plus her advice to other female founders. Here's Teresa Gao. Teresa Gao, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to have you here with us. You have a fascinating backstory growing up early years in Indonesia, moving here to Buffalo when you were three years old, Mm -hmm. and now you're one of the most powerful VCs in the country. What a backstory to lead into that. It's probably fairly unusual (laughs) relative to the other VCs that I know. That's fair. So tell me a little bit about growing up and what it was like coming here. Yeah, so when we first came here. Um, my dad and my mom worked uh, in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, my dad was a dishwasher. My mom was the hostess. Um, that was the first jobs, the only jobs they could get when we first got here. And my dad um, was a dentist. My mom was a nurse in Indonesia. But they had to obviously um, get into school here. My dad eventually did uh, go to SUNY Buffalo, which is how we ended up in Buffalo, to get his um, dental license in the United States. And um, then my mom, my mom and dad. So eventually, they, we left, and that's why I grew up outside of Buffalo. Was because of SUNY Buffalo has a large dental school that um, has a special program for foreign-born graduates, so that he could get his degree in like eighteen months instead of four years. How much of growing up with parents who were industrious made you want to be entrepreneurial? So I didn't even know what entrepreneurial meant. At that time, growing up, honestly, I probably didn't really know what it meant until, uh, you know, post-college, maybe even not until I came to the West Coast to Stanford for business school. But what the industriousness did show me is, you know, basically hard work. And if you're willing to work hard and you're not afraid to start over, you can achieve, you know, whatever you want, uh, your dreams. That was obviously for my parents was like their dream to bring us and emigrate here to the U.S. So... The value of hard work was definitely pressed, impressed upon me from an early age, um, and also the importance of school. Mm-hmm. Um, so working hard in order to get good grades was uh, not an option. It was a given. And you went to some very good schools along the way. Yeah, I was, uh, I was lucky. I went to Brown for my undergrad, and I got a degree in engineering, which was one of the two acceptable majors in my parents' mind, pre-med or engineering. 
Um, so engineering it was. <laughs> and engineering, <laughs> I mean, that's a degree where it, it over-indexes male versus female. Mm. What were the courses like and how much of that prepared you to be in venture capital eventually? Uh, so, again, it very astute observation. My class, uh, my, my engineering graduating class at Brown was 90% male, 10% female. Interestingly, in venture capital today, uh, depending on which numbers you look at, it's uh, either 91 or 93% male and either 9 or 7% female on the investing partner side. So I guess without knowing it, it prepared me very well. Um, it was fairly similar. Uh, it, was, it was interesting because there were definitely, um, early on, it was not easy to, uh, to get guys to want to have you in their study groups. Oh, really? they assumed that you would uh, drag them down because you weren't going to be as, uh, as good of a student uh, as they were. So uh, how did you behave as a result of knowing that or feeling uh, that? Uh, it wasn't feeling it. It was literally like, no, we don't want to have you in study group. So wow. luck- luckily for me, um, my best friend from Brown, um, uh, Sangira Bhatia, is now an engineering professor at MIT. So as you might imagine, she did quite well. <laughs> And so since the guys didn't want us in their study group, we formed our own. And it was like the luckiest thing for me because I think she literally graduated top in class. I I ended up doing okay. I eventually ended up graduating um, magna cum, but freshman year was really rough for me in engineering. I got um, I got a B, also known as Asian F. Uh, also also got a C that I, I'm not aware what the Asian name is for that, because I think it's just not in the vocabulary. So I struggled in the beginning. It was a big adjustment coming from my little small town high school. Um, But good friends like Singita, and uh, there were a couple of other guys who actually allowed us to be in their study group, but a bunch of them who didn't want us to be in there. So it sort of like reminds me of the, uh, there's a line in Pretty Woman when she comes back, right? She's like, you get paid on commission, right? It was sort of like, Standing yes. next to Singita when when they plotted out our first uh, first exams, which everything's on a forced curve, and so you know the middle of the bell curve is like fifty five, and that like gets you like an A minus or a B plus. And she was literally like the dot over on the right, and I think the guys who said that she couldn't be in their study group were pretty bummed. Big mistake, huge, <laughs> huge. I huge love mistake. that. That was that was exactly what we were thinking. I love that. We've had an, a number of conversations here about the building blocks that it takes to get to success. And there were so many different paths. However, that said, there are certain things that are fundamental to certain professions. For example, Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, and I had this conversation about the fact that it's absolutely fine if you're interested in human resources or marketing or sales to pursue those. But if your objective is to be the CEO of mm. a public company, you need to have an operations role, a management role that oversees a big portion of that company's business. And in some respects, if you look at the world that you live and operate in and also the world of founders who are really getting the most money to go out and create tech businesses, that engineering computer science background is really a must. What I would say is that it's certainly really helpful uh, because it allows you to uh, walk into the room with a little bit more credibility, especially earlier in your career, uh, when that's kind of 
basically what you have is like your education and maybe like one job, right? Like when you start out in venture. But I think interestingly, um, I had a a group called the the board list took a look at the um, the Midas list. Uh, which is the Forbes list of yes. top venture Yes, we had investors. Annie Lamont here, yeah. who's on the Midas list. Yeah, um, and so she, um, so the board list looked at it to examine whether how important it was to have an engineering or computer science degree uh, of the Midas listers. And interestingly, of the women on the list, like Annie and myself, um, not that many of us. Yeah, I think it was like over eighty percent of us had technical degrees. But for the males mm. on the list, um, it was much more like 50-50. So I think, unfortunately, what it says is that if you are not necessarily uh, what they like to say, if you don't look like the pattern that they're used to seeing, then it's absolutely important to have all the all the credential boxes checked. Uh, but interestingly, if you maybe look more like the pattern, it's uh, not so important. Yes, that is such a valuable point, and I appreciate that perspective. I also think you, as the first female partner at Excel, has to have given you a lot of perspective as well. So before you you created your firm, you started out at one of the largest venture capital firms in the world. Yeah, well, it wasn't when I joined, but it you brought it by there. The time. Well, you made no, it. I mean, happen. no, no, no. It wasn't just me, <laughs> but I'm just saying when I joined, it was a. I mean, it was a big, successful venture firm. I joined in the beginning of '99, but we were only. You know, I was an associate. There were like four GPs. Yes, by the time I left, it was much larger, global enterprise, multi-stage. Um, so it was a. It was a great. It was a great place. It was amazing training ground. I had some great mentors there like Jim Breyer and Arthur Patterson who helped me learn the business. It really is an apprenticeship business, I think. Um, and it was fantastic. But yeah, I was, uh, I was, you know, one of, one of the greatest things was when um, the Axel London folks hired uh, my then partner, Sonali. Um, and one of the, one of my personal disappointments was that I wasn't able to um, bring on board another woman investor uh, in the U.S., how so? Why, why did that happen? You know, I think that there were uh, – we did grow a lot. We made a lot of hires. Um, and, you know, even though I was part of the recruiting team, I obviously have to own it. Um, you know, we just – it never was a match, at least while I was there. And believe me, I tried. So there was a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff happening that didn't no, pan out? No, everyone wanted to, to, to hire uh you know, more diverse partners. I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, where I think that the credentialing that is required for um, more diverse investors uh, sets the bar pretty high uh, and not necessarily always the same for, for other candidates. I think it's completely unconscious. So if you ask consciously, everyone wanted to, and obviously now you see sort of the rush after mm-hmm. everything, um, of, of firms bringing on their first female partners and general partners. Um, I think people, uh, by setting constraints, end up making it harder to get candidates to come through the pool uh, because you have to open up sort of your your criterion a little bit more. Is that... So when when people hear the the idea of a pipeline problem, 
Is that what you're talking about? I think people use that as an excuse, right? I'm, I'm not... Um, Do you believe there's a pipeline problem? I believe we can always do better in the pipeline, and certainly it's true on certain things like computer science. You know, it used to be 40%, almost 50% females. Right. And now it's dropped down to mid-20s, high-20s. Engineering, like I was saying, when I, back when I <laughs> wasn't getting my... 10% was not unusual. It has now climbed to high-20s, so <laughs> or about 30. So for, for, unfortunately, wrong way on the lines, but now engineering and computer science are about... 30-ish percent. So is there a pipeline problem? Sure. Like, it'd be great if it was 50%, or by the way, actually 58%, because that's the number, the percent of undergraduate degrees being granted, 58% are going to women. We know it can be done in other STEM fields, um, like biology and mathematics. It is now um, actually more than 50%. So if you take all STEM fields, it's now, um, because it's 58% bachelor's degrees, um, it's about 50 to 49% females because there's just so many more females uh, getting bachelor's degrees. Anyway, so is there part of a pipeline problem? Sure, but we just talked about the other numbers. 7 to 9% of venture capitalists are females. Uh, about 17% of venture capital-backed founders are female. So even if you wanted to say we shouldn't relax the need for a technical undergraduate degree, which hopefully our prior discussion says, hmm, maybe we should think about that. So uh, how do you explain it's not a pipeline problem? How do you go from 30% to 7% or 30% to 19%, mm-hmm. even if you just looked at the actual pipeline? So, And that that's just in venture. And, and the same holds true, by the way, in, in tech in general, right? There, there's not... There's not a single tech company, big tech company, because they now self-report, that has anywhere near 30% of their technical workforce as being female. So uh, eventually there will be a pipeline problem. That is not what's causing the problems today. If you had to say, here's three changes we Mm. must make today that will change this, what would those changes be? So I think one of the things, uh, and, and actually being on the show is a great opportunity for it. Um, so thank you. One thing is we need to show uh, young women that they're, that tech can be a great place and a great career for them. And we need to create cultures that don't look like the bro culture that they see on Silicon Valley. And unfortunately, we've read real live news stories that actually show that in some places, the culture is far worse and far mm-hmm. more toxic than what's portrayed on that show. So one is just, hopefully, we're not turning off a generation of young women, those young, bright women who are getting technical degrees or not, right? Because my other point is, like, we need all kinds of people. Like, yes. back to what Ursula, you know, we do need people who are going to run marketing. Sales, by the way, is another great way to actually be CEO because that's a big part of the organization. Women actually do extremely well in tech sales. Um, so... That's number one, is there are bad places and bad stories. Fortunately, that's the minority, not the majority. And we need to talk about the majority of places, workplaces, uh, and, and employers where it's really positive and increasing, increasingly so. I see this, this generation being very focused on um, having a more inclusive uh management team and board. And they see it, the founders, uh, I'm part of something called Founders for Change. So the founders who have signed up to this, they're doing it because they understand it's going to make their business better. 
if they can if they can be attractive to the entire potential employee population, not just a subset of it, they're going to win the race for talent, which every CEO will tell you is the number one goal. So I I'm cautiously optimistic that the idea of good culture being a competitive differentiator um, uh, is is being embraced by today's founders uh, and management teams and telling those stories. So that's number one. Number two is make sure that when you are hiring people that you are going the extra mile to make sure that you are uh, interviewing a diverse candidate pool. Uh, There's lots of things that people do. I mean, football does this and companies do this now, like the Rooney Rule of like, you know, don't even bring finalists unless you have at least one or two diverse candidates in that finalist pool, or you won't get that hire. One of my CEOs literally stood up in front of his company, big tech company, said, "That's we're going we're gonna to live by that from now on. I don't care if you have a job rack opening, if you can't bring at least one uh, diverse candidate to the finalist pool, you're not going to get that rack filled. So I think it takes leadership to really push that and, and, and embrace the right kind of hiring and HR policies to create that. And then I think the last thing is um, I think that uh, really the, the simplest way is to have leaders who are uh, leadership teams that are more diverse. That's the way, that's the way you're going to make the, the overall employee base. So um, that's why, you know, I know for a lot of, uh, a lot of founders, sometimes the easiest way to sort of create culture and leadership change is to go start your own. I know obviously working with entrepreneurs, that's not surprising. Um, and so I think a lot of people are starting to do that. I'm really encouraged by the increasing number of women founders, um, mm-hmm. both at venture-backed companies and then at venture capital firms as well. So um, baby steps, but we're making progress. Yeah, I think I hear from a lot of women. I'm 36 years old, and I think that this point in your life, uh, a number of my friends who have been inside of large companies and who feel like they've been overlooked and doing the work of other people, they're much more seriously considering going out and founding their own business or they have gone out to found their own business because that's the only way that they really feel like they're going to be able to bet on themselves. It's the fastest way to the CEO slot. (laughs) It's also not an easy path. Uh, We don't mean to overstate it that way. I want to come back to what you were doing early on at Excel because one of the big early investments of your time there was Facebook. Did you have any idea when you were making that call that Facebook would be what it is today? Hear more from Teresa Gao after a quick word from our sponsor. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Did you have any idea when you were making that call that Facebook would be what it is today? So um, so I was fortunate to be part of the partnership who came in uh, when they made their pitch and we uh, and part of the group to walk down the street to give Zuck and team their Series A term sheet. So I will be honest and say I did not know that it, 
I don't think anybody sits there when you're looking at a Series A investment with less than 10 people in the company and thinks like, the company's going to be worth $500 billion. Like, <laughs> I know they, people paint VCs as like crazy big dreamers, but like that's like crazy, crazy big. But I so... If no, you said that, but, if let me just ask you. So if you said dollars. this is going to be a $500 billion company, what would the other people have said to you at that moment? I have to go back in time because this was 2005. They would have said like, um, so you're saying it's going to be Apple because I'm not sure there's any other tech company that's worth that much at that time. Yeah. Right now, now obviously, Google, Apple, there's a bunch of others that are, you know, Apple's a trillion you know, uh, uh, dollars, twice that, uh, Amazon. But so I don't think anybody thinks that at the time. And and this, again, you have to think back 13, 2005, like just market caps of all companies. There's, there were probably a handful of companies that were even that size. But I will say that um, it definitely was one of the few times when the entire partnership was like completely like, oh, my God, we got to do this deal. We have to pursue this company and we have to we have to take it. And so, why was that? Was that Mark? Was that the idea? Um. It was a combination. I think it's always a combination of certainly the founder um, and the market, uh, and specifically in this case. So it just felt like it was going to be something special. Like so, who how who knows? But it was it was different. We looked at a bunch of social networking companies. It was quite small at the time, right? It was only for college students. It only had a couple million users. Uh, compared to like how big MySpace was at the mm-hmm. time, um, but the difference was as it added more users, it was the first one that we saw, even that they were all called social networks, that actually showed the network effect. Meaning, as you add more users, the um, usage and the frequency of usage actually increases. Usually, as uh, the other networks that we looked at, as it got larger, as it got to a certain size, you know, it starts to plateau and it starts to go the other way because you start to get people who aren't as active and it starts to get hard to find interesting stuff. Um, And so this was really breathtaking. We were like, wow, two thirds of the people are on every single day. And half of those people are on for like two hours a day. They're already addicts. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so that was what really kind of stood out. Uh, Now, did I... I was like, there's no way they're going to keep up that kind of... But, you know, uh, they were like well past a billion users and they still had 50% daily active usage. So it's proven to be uh, pretty durable and much scale- much more scalable than even we would have thought back then. Wow. So you're at Excel. Things are going really well. What drives you to make the call, I'm going to go out and do my own thing and found Aspect Ventures? You know... Um, I think it's like a lot of founders say, it was great, loved it. It's not that you, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, they don't leave Google because it's a bad place. It's that they see this market opportunity and they they feel like there's an opportunity to do something that nobody else is doing exactly in the same way. So for me, that was how I, how I felt about Aspect, which was, we started the firm to focus, to be laser focused again. We sort of joke, it's kind of like back to the future <laughs> for mm-hmm. us, like how the venture business was in the 90s. So when I said it was much smaller, right? So an ability to be just focused on software tech in certain areas that we care about in the Series A stage. So really bridging the gap between there's been a real increase in the number of awesome seed funds and angel investors out there. And then we knew from having been at bigger places that like, 
while we still did Series A investments, we now did everything in the gamut from Series A to, you know, uh, billion-dollar-plus pre-IPO rounds. And we were not just focused on the United States anymore. We were focused globally and all of those kinds of things. So we thought there was a really interesting opportunity to sort of slot in and, and fill that white space, if you will, and really be a bridge between seed and later stage of venture capital. And we also thought that there was an opportunity to um, have a fund that was the right size, being big enough to lead those A's, but small enough so that we could bring back an idea which had kind of fallen by the wayside, which is syndicating Series A rounds. So that just means making room for two investing partners, two funds, even in the Series A. Uh, I think that the companies get huge benefits by having you know two networks of people for recruiting, for future fundraising, for customers, all of those things. But as uh, a lot of other venture funds got much larger, it became harder because, quote-unquote, people have to write a certain check size or own a certain amount. Aspect is uh, we're investing out of fund two. It's $200 million. It's certainly big enough to lead $10 million Series A's. But we're also small enough that we can be flexible because it's really around investing in the best founding teams in the markets that we care about and then putting together the best investor syndicate. Um, we don't always have to be, you know, the biggest kids on the block. I want you, just for our listeners, because I know they run the gamut from the specialists who are definitely familiar with VC to the newcomers, let's just do some basic VC mm-hmm. speak okay. around the financing, okay? So seed round, that means you're basically just getting started. Exactly. Um, that's ex- exactly what it means. In, it used to, Before there were sort of seed funds, it used to be called like the friends and family round because that was oftentimes literally who you were asking. Now there are a bunch of great professional seed funds. And people do friends and family or seed round. Right. Financing A, Series A, what does that mean? So that's t- when a fund like Aspect or another venture firm um, leads probably more like a 5 to $10 million round. Um, and they tend to be professional venture firms who have, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, university endowments and foundations um, like Melinda Gates, uh, and we invest in your company. What the other big thing that's the difference in Series A is that that's usually the time when you're going to create a board of directors. And so uh, most of the time, at least one or two of your Series A investors will uh, not only invest money in your company, but join your board of directors and stay on your board until, you know, your IPO in the case of Trulia, which was a Series A that I led, right? Or until your company gets acquired uh, in the case of LearnVest, uh, which is a company that I led the Series A in and was acquired by Northwestern Mutual. So, and then all of the series rounds beyond the Series A are just your your they company is letters. growing. They need yes. some more money as they go out to reach out for that money. Believe that they're worth more than they were on the Series A. So it's continuously getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. and it's either approaching that sale or the IPO. Correct. And the average average venture back company. From the time they raise their Series A until they either get acquired or go public, that, that's been growing uh, over time. It used to be like seven or eight years, and now it's more like 10 years. And so your listeners have probably noticed that there's uh, companies have been staying private longer, raising private rounds um, that are much bigger, bigger sometimes than what IPOs used to be back in the day. And so that that trend has stretched that out. 
Uh, and so when you read about like the giant mega rounds in Uber or Lyft, that, that's an example, right? Because uh, maybe five, ten years ago, those companies were big enough, they'd be going public instead of raising a giant round from, say, SoftBank Vision Fund. So we've had a number of the venture-backed female-led companies on No Limits, and a number of them are consumer-related companies. Do you believe that consumer companies, as they are today, can be treated like tech companies with venture money? And and are we are we sort of working ourselves into a potentially precarious place to put the kind of valuations on consumer companies and the kind of expectations on consumer companies of growth that would also apply to a Facebook, for example? Um, so I think that... Uh there are different kinds of consumer companies, so I definitely think that um, consumer uh, re- retail or e-tail companies, um, you know, some of whom have done very well, but they are harder to scale than consumer sort of software tech-only companies. It's hard to get people to buy a $500 bag, for example, more than a couple of times in a lifetime. Yes, and you also have you know the the operational complexity, which obviously Amazon handles really well, of inventory, warehousing, delivery, logistics. Right? You just don't in a software only business, you don't have that. So I do think that there are con- some really interesting consumer facing software businesses um, that uh, that are being funded and continue to have real growth opportunity. Right? So. When you're talking about sort of female-led companies, right? So still private, but, you know, I think what Adi is doing at House is super interesting, right? It's pure software business, highly scalable, um, super interesting business. House is the H-O-U-Z-Z. Sorry. Which is, no, no problem. So, and that's the website or the app Mm -hmm. that is dedicated to people decorating their homes and things like that? Yeah, and actually it's much more even around home improvement, um, more so than than decorating, so like actual projects, and it's got a tremendous. I'm not an investor, so but I, I've seen tremendous number of users and a lot of uh, professionals, so uh, carpenters, others who are you know advertising on it. So think mm. about it as, uh, I don't know, I don't know if they would like you know, sort of like yeah. y- Yelp for right. for home improvement, yeah, right. Um, so I think that's an example. Obviously, Katrina Lake with the Stitch Fix IPO has proven that, you know, even in a difficult, demanding, you know, sort of personalized, physical uh, apparel business, she's killing it, doing great. So I think that uh, there are still real interesting opportunities for consumer-facing businesses, especially the ones that are going to require less capital, which usually means that they're really more software only. But to your point, there is real tech in that, right? There's real software in identifying, you know, how to do the personalization for the Stitch Fix boxes. So I think if there's real software intellectual property that's being developed, I think those businesses continue to be very interesting. Um, I think that, interestingly, the public markets are showing that they still continue to like consumer names, but uh, the private venture markets, it's been harder for those companies to raise capital over the last two to three years. So we have sort of an inversion. And why do you think that is? Um, I think that there was 
as often happens in venture, there were too many companies that were started, broadly speaking, in the consumer space, right? Sort of like it's like boom and bust, right? And then there were so many that uh, th- that got sort of seed or Series A funding that you know the the mid stage capital can afford to be much choosier, and then a bunch of them didn't make it, right? Like Fab, right? Um, one King's Lane, right? Sometimes people say VCs are like lemmings, right? So it's kind of like the hot sector and then everyone runs away. So I think we're just in part of that normal sort of up and down cycle. And what is the hot sector right now? Is it healthcare, education? Anything with the words AI or anything <laughs> with the words blockchain. What's the biggest mistake you see entrepreneurs making when they're pitching you? I think the biggest mistake that... Uh, entrepreneurs often make is underestimating the their competition uh, and and I, I understand like so they're pitching us right so they they're they're painting the positive uh, but I think that people always need to be aware that what they're comparing themselves to is only what they see sort of where the where the competition is today. Mm. And in their mind, of course, they already know what their roadmap is. So they're kind of projecting their future. But you know their competitors' roadmap too. Well yeah. It makes me think of like a there's a thing there's a saying in, in, in hockey, it's like skate to where the puck is going, right? So I think uh, and great entrepreneurs definitely are actually hyper paranoid like like Andy Grove from Intel said. Um, and so those entrepreneurs are thinking about their competition in, in the right paranoid way. I mean, obviously, it's a balance, right? Like, you can't be doing things because of that. But like, you should be doing things because of your mission and what you believe and what you think is the right roadmap. But you have to be aware of what's going around. It's like, it's like you're driving, right? Like you're driving, but you have to be aware of the traffic and the things that are going on around you, right? You're not in a bubble. So if I come in and pitch you on my company, XYZ Inc., and I want you to buy into what I'm selling, Obviously, I have to create the vision of what it is. But do I then bring up to you, well, of course I know my competition is doing this, or do I wait for you to bring that up and then I have a great blockbuster answer for why we're in a better position than the competition? So everybody has a different style. But for me personally, I I prefer when you bring it up because I actually think that that's an opportunity. You get to frame it, right? So if instead of reacting to the questions that I ask you, which – Frankly, you're going to know a lot more about the market than I am. So I might be coming at it like off, like from some weird angle. But if you bring it up and you frame it like literally on the slide, like you frame it, you're like, I'm company XYZ. This is how I think about company one, company two. Here's where they fit. And here's where I fit, why we're different. It actually gives you the advantage, right? Because you get to position yourself relative to them as opposed to just responding randomly to like, what about this company? What about that company? Um, so I think that's a real advantage. We've seen some improvements in the amount of venture backing that is going towards female companies. It was 2.2% in 2017. They don't have figures out yet for 2018, but it, it but it is it's it's going up from anecdotally from what I've heard. How can women in particular better pitch themselves to you and to other venture capitalists? So, um so those are the numbers in terms of dollars, just to frame in terms of uh, percent, right? So, because I had mentioned before, I think it's about 18% of uh, venture-funded companies have a female founder or co-founder, and that's 
not what we wish it was, but it's actually uh, it's taken a long time. But it's double what it was in like '99. So small progress um, to frame it. So aspect. Uh, we are our investing team happens to be fifty percent male, fifty percent female, and our our investment portfolio has forty percent female founders. So it's just back to the prior conversation. We think that because we are more diverse, that's why our portfolio is double. It reflects it. Um, so what what would be my advice to women um, founders? So I I do think that uh, in contrasting, women founders. Um, are very well prepared. They have done their homework. They uh, they, they know uh, a lot of the details of their business and their market, and they spend a lot of time on that. Which Do is they a seem great more thing. prepared than the male founders that you see? In general, uh, I would say yes, in terms of the awareness of the details. Um, sometimes, though, what that uh, does, which is great to be aware. Um, but and I think there was like a Harvard study that sort of showed this, right? So uh, women founders often pitch and get asked questions more about sort of the the downsides and the costs of their business and less about the upside. They paint a more reasonable picture. Um, and so realize that um, it's great to be very grounded in the data of where your business is today. But I and every other venture capitalist is investing in what we think the future of your business is going to be. So your pitch to us has to reflect that balance. So it's awesome that you're super homeworked and knowledgeable about where your team and your product and your customers and your business is today. And that clearly lays the foundation. But then you need to paint a big enough, exciting enough uh, vision for where the business is going to be. Remember what I said. I invest. I know it's not ten years until you know. And on the one hand, so and by the way, by that I certainly don't mean I want to see your financial projections for five or ten years from now. I won't believe them anyway. <laughs> but but it's more about you know your product roadmap, your market roadmap. Like okay, today I'm selling to these customers, but you know next I'm going to expand to this customer base, and then I'm going to add this product, and you know that's what I mean about painting the picture for the vision of where your business is going to be in five to ten years. And I think female entrepreneurs, as a generalization, don't do as good a job of that. So when you look back at your own career and the thinking through all of these various steps, specifically when it came to change and moving forward and and making changes in your career, how did you think through that question? You know, how did I think through? When did you know you were ready to make the leap? Because mm. I think that's a, I think that's something that everybody who's listening right now can relate to. I have to be honest and say, you know, each time it happened, um, it, it wasn't like some. It's certainly not something that I had planned in advance. It's sort of like, I think you know the moment is right when you can't stop thinking about that. You know, mm-hmm. whether the that is the new company that you want to start or that other job, or that other career. Um, So for me, each time it's sort of been like, I might not have even thought about it six months before, but suddenly all I can think about is, oh, what would it be like to do this, right? So I had been an entrepreneur, had raised venture capital, um, realized that I was ready to move on to sort of the next startup, 
hadn't even really thought about VC. Then one of my VCs was like, hey, maybe you should think about VC. And then I did some interviews and I was like, oh, maybe I should think about, you know, and so, but then it was like, it became clear to me, like starting it, I didn't know whether, you know, I I knew what being a, a founder was like. I didn't really know other than raising money from venture capital, what that would be like. But it became clear to me in that process that like I was spending much more of my brain time and my emotional time thinking about what it would be like to be a VC. So I was like, okay, well, obviously I should do that, right? And then I made the leap to Excel. Um, and in terms of starting Aspect, you know, it was like I I found that I was spending – I was on a lot of boards, a lot of boards, 15 or 16. But I was spending <laughs> most of my emotional and th- like around like – what I call the baby companies, right? Like those seed and series A companies. And I was like, you know what? Wouldn't it be fun if I could spend all of my time just on that? Uh, and that was really uh, the genesis of co-founding aspect. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Toughest lesson is you really do learn more from failure than success. Um, but it's really but also you got to give yourself a little bit of time to sort of heal <laughs> before you can reflect and really get the insights from those failures. Um, but if you don't do it, you're really missing out on a big opportunity. Don't be afraid to fail either. I mean, if you, if you don't, you know, no risk, no reward. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? The worst advice I've ever received was to take copious notes in meetings. And um, the reason why that's really bad advice, particularly for women, is you literally lose your seat at the table even you're if you're disengaged. at the table yeah you're 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 seen as not really being in the discussion in the conversation um so who told you to take copious notes it was probably a male supervisor who was trying to get my you career. to take notes for him yes but not for you correct and did you do it i as it was a supervisor, I uh, I did, but I made sure to participate in the con- in the meeting in the conversation very early, so that it was clear that I was part of the conversation, even though I was also taking notes, mm-hmm. and I didn't take copious notes, more like outline. <laughs> That's a really I, I, we've never heard that one before. Here, what was your level? At that stage, you know, I was an associate. So to yeah. be in the room as the associate, you want to get in the conversation. Yeah. And if your head is down taking the notes, you're not a part of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were part of this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Teresa. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Really fun. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Dr. Pirai Baim. She is the CEO and founder of Selmatix, which is a personalized medicine company. They focus on fertility and women's health. Pirai received her PhD in molecular genetics from Cornell University. She went on to do postdoctoral research in embryology at the University of Cambridge. And it was there that she noticed two major things that led her to found Selmatix in 2009. The first was how many of the women in her network were making life-defining decisions about their fertility and family plans based primarily on their age. 
By the way, this is something we've seen come up here on No Limits. We've had conversations with women, for example, like Christine Barbaric of Refinery29 on this very topic. The second thing are the breakthroughs that were happening in other areas of healthcare, and they weren't translating to women's health. So she teamed up with her graduate school roommate, created Selmatix with the mission of leveraging big data to help women make better informed healthcare decisions through personalized medicine. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Dr. Piraya Yurtash Baim, the founder and CEO of Selmatix, a next generation women's health company based here in New York City. I started my career as an academic focused on the science of fertility. What I realized after turning 30 was how many women in my network were making life-defining decisions about their fertility and their family plans based on age alone. As a scientist, I saw how big data and genomics were changing fields like oncology, but not women's health. So in 2009, I founded Cellmatics with a mission to bring big data, including genomics, to help women make more informed decisions about their health. So congratulations, Puri. I wish you continued success. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from the doctor and how she created her business. Also, don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send those nominations or career questions to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy we all are, so when you write, I really appreciate it and respect it. I also want to say thank you so much to those of you who have been leaving us reviews like this one from Vidya. That's Vidya with five A's. She says, I totally geek out for this podcast, especially since I'm a 20-something in the middle of a career switch. Both RJ and the women she interviews are totally inspiring, and they've been getting me through the tough job hunting times. I recommend to all the driven ladies out there. Vidya, thank you so much. I hope your job search is either closing in on an opportunity or you're feeling good about it. If not, give us a an email. Send me another note. Let me know how we can help. Let's talk about it. Okay, finally, a shout out here to our awesome team that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Ride, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.